morning, Saint Barabbas. Today's passage is taken from Book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 1 to 15. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 15. This is the word of God. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be suffering for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and we go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came, from, came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead was judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and haze gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and haze were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the word of God. Good, well thank you very much indeed for that reading. Um, You might have perhaps thought it wasn't especially Christmassy, Um, but actually it is, and you'll see why in a moment. So let's, uh, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at this passage together. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you've taught us that we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We pray that you would come to us this morning as a father with little children, and that you would break down for us the bread of life, We pray that you would not only open our mouths that we might feed, but also our hearts that we might inwardly digest the food of the gospel. And we pray that as we look again into your word, that we might find our Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life, who has come down from heaven, that in him we might enjoy eternal and everlasting life. So speak to us then, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's, there's an old poem um, about the devil uh, that goes like this. Uh, the devil was fairly voted out, and of course the devil's gone, but simple folk would like to know who carries his business on. I think these days, for many people, talk of a personal devil will provoke a rather patronising smile and a laugh as they picture uh, somebody with uh, horns and a tail. And yet, friends, when we consider our own lives, uh, the idea of an ultimate force of evil is not really so very far-fetched, is it? Uh, I'm not talking about those days when we're grumpy and rebellious. We all have those days. Now, I'm talking about the days when you really do want to obey the Lord and you really do want to give yourself sacrificially to serving the people around you and it all goes pear-shaped. And for some reason, you simply don't manage to keep it together. Now, where did those ugly thoughts, those ideas, those crass behaviours come from? Where did the red mist come from? that meant I completely lost it. Those words that came out so very cruel and cutting. Uh, Haven't all of us asked that question at some time or other? The point is that you can believe in human sinfulness and responsibility, which is of course what the Bible teaches, and yet still be very conscious in your own personal experience of a force of evil outside of us. Why do some well-meaning institutions become blind to their own corruption? Why do entire communities in our country get trapped into a web of violence which they know actually is ultimately completely pointless? And what about the level of the individual? Uh, This week I came across the tragic story of a man called Kerry Fuller Uh, He was happily married with three children, but one day about eight years ago, he stabbed and killed the 
three children aged seven, eight, and 12, and then threw himself off a cliff. Why did he do that? His father-in-law doesn't know, because shortly afterwards he wrote a remarkable open letter to one of the national newspapers, and this is what he said. Quote, Perhaps some of you feel anger towards the man who did this, but I know him as the man who fell in love with my daughter. I know him as the man who worked tirelessly to provide for the family that he loved. I know him as the man who, together with my daughter, raised my beautiful grandchildren in an environment of love and joy and laughter. Perhaps we'll never understand the torment in Kerry's mind that drove him to such an act. But I know this was not an act of malice or spite. I weep for my daughter's pain, I weep for the loss of my grandchildren, and I weep for Kerry's pain and confusion. He will always remain the man that I am proud to call my son-in-law. Now those are very remarkable words, aren't they? So why did he do it? The devil, Satan, the serpent, in the early chapters of Genesis, is constantly trying to frustrate God's good plans for humanity. He does it through lies and deception. But the devil is also a murderer. That's what Jesus says. The devil delights in destroying human beings. Now when people outside of the church uh, dismiss the idea of Satan as either a myth or simply a cartoon character, no doubt Satan smiles to himself and just quietly gets on with what he wants to do. But in the book of Revelation, John is not trying to convince people outside the church that the devil is real. No, he's writing for Christians who don't need any convincing because they can see Satan's handiwork all around them every day. They can see their Christian friends being persecuted and killed for their faith, and they see churches that started out so well, so very promisingly, being infected by false teaching and immorality. Now those are the people that John is writing for here. And he wants them to know what the future holds for the devil. And it's a vital question, friends, because let me tell you that there's no future worth having without an answer. Because as long as Satan is on the loose, there will be evil and suffering for all humanity and especially for Christians. Now cast your mind back to the very beginning of the book because John tells us there that in Revelation, through Revelation, God has given him a glimpse of what's really happening now, today, behind the scenes. And God has also given him a glimpse of what will come later. Now in our passage this morning, we've got the same pattern. John once again takes us behind the scenes to show us that life isn't quite as it seems on the surface. And then he shows us what's going to come later as he describes Satan's destiny and ours. So this morning we start in the snake pit 
verses 1 to 3. Have a look at verse 1 with me again. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now, don't let's get stressed about the difficult bits. Notice the big point. The big point is Satan is chained. He is bound. He is restricted. Now, as you think about that, can I ask you, can you remember any other references to Satan being bound or tied up elsewhere in the New Testament? Cast your mind back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, Matthew, Mark and Luke all tell us that when Jesus began his ministry, there were lots of miracles... And on one occasion, there was a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And uh, Jesus healed him so that he could speak. And the word spread like wildfire. People started saying, um, could Jesus be the son of David? Could this perhaps be the Messiah? And you may remember that the religious establishment, the Pharisees, responded to all of that by saying absolutely no way, no. They were saying that Jesus is demon-possessed. Do you remember that? Now, that's how Jesus casts out demons. And uh, the reply that Jesus gave is absolutely stunning. The gist of it is, Jesus says, that is completely ridiculous. Uh, if Satan attacks his own side, well, that is entirely self-defeating. makes no sense at all. So let me tell you what really is happening. And this is what Jesus says, quote, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then, he can rob his house. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Now focus on that phrase, unless he first ties up the strong man. Because the word ties up that Jesus uses there is exactly the same word that we find in our passage this morning in Revelation 20 and verse 2, where it is translated as bound. So Jesus was saying that when he dies on the cross, Satan, the strong man, will be tied up. He will be chained. And that's the idea, the picture that we've got before us in Revelation chapter 20. In chapter 20, John is showing us what's really going on behind the scenes throughout the church age. And let me just pause there and say that's what the thousand years are talking about. It's a symbolic number referring to the entire period between the first and the second coming of Christ, the period that we sometimes talk about as the last days. 
Now, can I suggest to us that after 20 chapters of Revelation, we're quite used to symbols, aren't we? So, it's not difficult for us to get our mind about the symbolic significance of the thousand years. What's much harder for us here in this chapter is to accept the idea that Satan is chained. Because quite honestly, as we look at everything that's going on in our world today, Satan actually seems to be far too active, doesn't he, for us to believe that he really is chained. And uh, can I suggest that our questions about this are probably really rather mild compared to the questions that John's first readers would have had about this. I mean, they were, mar- they were watching their friends being uh, marched off to prison or worse. They knew that John, who wrote the book, was bound himself on the island of Patmos in exile. And we can understand them thinking, Satan bound? Seriously? You've got to be kidding. And friends, that is the whole point. Of course it doesn't look like it. Of course we can't work out what's really happening behind the scenes for ourselves. That's why John had to be shown these things. You see, as we watch the suffering of the church in many parts of the world today, I don't think it would really occur to us to conclude that Satan is operating off the end of a chain and that there's a limit to what he can actually do. So John takes us behind the scenes and he shares with us what he himself has seen. And it's as if he's sort of kind of picking up the chain and saying, can you see it? Now, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, These verses, of course, are not the whole story. We've said several times before that every picture in the book of Revelation is teaching us an important lesson. But no one picture is giving us the whole story. So yes, of course, Satan is active in our world today. The whole book of Revelation is full of his activity. But the picture in Revelation 20 is showing us what Satan can't do. And I wonder if you spotted it. Did you spot it? Have a look at verse 3. In the middle of verse 3, it says that Satan has been bound to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Now, that is the purpose of the chain. And it's the only purpose that's mentioned here. And it's telling us that the coming of Christ has broken the ignorance of the nations concerning God. I mean, think about it. Before Christ, what confident, realistic hope did the nations have of forgiveness from a holy God? Before Christ, what realistic, confident hope did they have of immortality, of life beyond the grave, based on fact and not a myth? But you see, when Jesus was born, do you remember old man Simeon? holding the baby Jesus in the temple and uh, what did he say? He said that this child will be a light for revelation to the nations. 
And as Jesus grows up and he begins his public ministry, do you remember some Greeks come to him? Do you remember that? John chapter 11, I think it is. Some Gentiles, people from the nations, they come to the disciples and they say, we would like to see Jesus. And on another occasion, a Roman centurion, someone from the nations, comes asking for help. And on another occasion, a Samaritan woman, someone from the nations, comes to Jesus, gets converted, goes back to her village and tells everybody all about him. And when we get to the book of Acts, we find that the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Rome and from Rome to the ends of the earth, to the nations. And ever since, sometimes slowly, sometimes rapidly, the gospel has continued to spread right around the world to the nations. Now notice the contrast in the passage. Look at what's going to happen at the end of the church age when Satan is released from his prison. Verse 8. He's going to go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth to gather them for battle. But here's the point. He hasn't done it yet. When Satan is released, yes, he is going to make a final assault on the people of God, but he hasn't done it yet. Which means the chain is very effective. The chain is doing its job. And what will happen at the end in verse 8 and so on is entirely under God's control, not Satan. So, as we go behind the scenes with John, we start to understand that, yes, Satan is dangerous. Yes, he is, but he's bound. I don't know if you've ever watched um, a live safari, um, either on DSTV, or maybe you've been fortunate enough to go into a game park on your own. And uh, if you have, you'll know that lions are very unpredictable. Uh, Actually, most sightings of lions in a game park usually show them lying down. It can be pretty dull. But just occasionally, something happens that provokes the alpha male. And uh, in an instant, he attacks with such ferocity and such violence and with such a loud roar that it takes your breath away. But if you're watching from a vehicle, you're safe. He's not going to get you. But it is a reminder, isn't it? Lions are dangerous. Even if, for the people in the car, and even more so watching on television, the danger is limited. Now, Satan is like that. He cannot destroy the church. He can hurt it. He can damage it. He can cause Christians to be killed for their faith, but he cannot finally destroy the church. Think of Iran. Forty years ago, there were around 500 known Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Just 500. Not very many. Four decades later, there are now closer to a million. A million Christians in Iran. Nearly all of them from a Muslim background. And throughout those 40 years, 
there has been sustained state-sponsored persecution of Christians. Uh, the Iranian government sees the conversion of Muslims to Christianity as a strategy by the West to undermine uh, Islamic rule. And so churches have been raided, leaders have been put in prison, sometimes for decades, for crimes against national security. So yes, the devil, the devil's dangerous, yes he is, still active, still causing great harm to Christians and families, but he cannot destroy the church. And that message then is reinforced in our text by the next little picture, the picture of the thrones in verses 4 to 6. Now you see, it's one thing, isn't it, for me to talk about Satan being chained from the comfort and security of St. Barnabas Weinberg on a Sunday morning. It is quite another for John to write this to people in his day who would have been saying, well, what about my friend? I mean, he stayed true to Christ, but where did that get him? Where did that get his family? They've all been martyred. And it looks, quite honestly, as if we're going to be next. So is this chain actually any use? Well, look at verse 4. I saw thrones. And John here is taking us into the throne room of heaven. And he shows us people reigning with Christ for a thousand years. In other words, all the time that Satan is chained but doing limited damage, these people are reigning with Christ. Why is John being shown these thrones? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's because we can't see them with our human eyes. They're in heaven. And who's on them? Verse 4. Those who've been given authority to judge. And that's Christians. I was actually thinking about this on my way to church this morning. I felt I hadn't completely bottomed out what John is saying here. And what I think that means is that when we proclaim the gospel, the authority of heaven is in our message. That's a great thought, isn't it? But it's not only those who've been given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. So Christian martyrs, you see, it's a contrast, isn't it? You know, I, I wonder if you can see how very encouraging this passage, this chapter is. John's been given the privilege of being taken behind the scenes where everything looks totally different from the way that you and I see it on a daily basis. Yes, the devil is there, but he's operating off a secure chain. And yes, Christians are under pressure. Some of them have been martyred. Some of them have been beheaded but they're also enthroned and they're reigning in heaven and John explains in verse 5 that this is the first resurrection which is actually a rather lovely way of talking about the new birth do you remember there's a place in John's gospel isn't there where Jesus says when you become a Christian you pass from death to life that's something that happens here 
when you became a Christian, you were resurrected spiritually. Uh, The Apostle Paul puts it like this, doesn't he? He's talking to Christians and he says, you've been raised with Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God, Colossians 3. That means if you're a Christian here this morning, you are a first resurrection person. You didn't know that when you came to church this morning, did you? But you are. And here in Revelation 20, what John is saying is, don't get stressed out about first resurrection people, because they are safe and secure in Christ. Save your concern for everyone else. So I think this picture for Christians is a marvellous encouragement. Because what we see here on earth is Christian brothers and sisters being humiliated and abused for their pains. And we ask, don't we, you know, why him? Why her? Uh, She was so helpful. He was so kind. This is just not fair. But verse 6, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, blessed, happy, fortunate, and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. And that, of course, is the place of judgment, as we see in a moment. So can you see that if we follow the Apostle John on this kind of guided tour, behind the scenes of the world we see with our human eyes, it changes our view of reality. Satan is powerful and dangerous, yes he is, but he's also chained. Believers are humiliated and abused and sometimes killed, yes they are, but they are also reigning and blessed. But I suppose most of us are okay with what I'm saying here in theory until uh, the person being humiliated or abused or killed is someone that we know and love. And of course when that happens we need more reassurance, don't we? So hold on to these marvellous pictures of what's happening today behind the scenes because for the rest of the chapter we're heading into the future to see what will one day be absolutely clear to the whole world. It begins with the last battle, verses 7 to 10. Now there have been hints of this all the way through the book. Uh, It's the last desperate death throw of the snake. Notice verse 7, he's released. Uh, Verse 8, the rebellion is international. The snake goes out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth and gather them for battle. And I should say that whilst the last battle hasn't happened yet, pretty clear, isn't it, that the battle lines have already been drawn up. We see it every day, don't we, in the growing hostility in our culture against Christian values. As far as the world is concerned, what we Christians believe about God and truth and Christian living, it's totally unacceptable. Uh, The world won't tolerate it. Christians must be silenced. 
So it's not surprising, is it, to find in verses 8 and 9 that the devil's forces are overwhelming in hostility and overwhelming in number. Do you see that in number? They're like sand on the seashore. Not a hugely big point, but does that remind you of anything? Do you remember God's promise to Abraham back in the book of Genesis? God said to him, all nations on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And I think John has picked up that phrase and pushed it in here because he's making the point that Satan is constantly trying to imitate God. And in verse 9, this vast multitude marched across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. And we feel the pressure of that. And make no mistake, they haven't come to negotiate. They haven't come to ask us Christians to please keep our views to ourselves, if we wouldn't mind. No, they've come to destroy God's people. American bishop was uh, speaking at one of their annual conventions a couple of years ago and he found himself up against an overwhelming tide of muddled and confused thinking about the Christian life and afterwards he said this people say to me the culture is not uh, sorry the culture is accepting this i.e. radical changes to you know views on gender and all that kind of thing to continue to resist these changes is to put ourselves on the wrong side of history, they said. And the bishop said, I say to them, you cannot be on the wrong side of history if you're on the right side of reality. Isn't that an absolutely brilliant comment? You cannot be on the wrong side of history if you're on the right side of reality. Because look where history ends, verse 9. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Does anybody in their right minds want to be on that side of history when verse 9 happens? You'd be a fool to want to be there, wouldn't you? Notice verse 9 very carefully. Because the last battle looks like it's going to be a holocaust, doesn't it? Millions of casualties on both sides because the devil's troops are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But verse 9 says the battle is over before it even starts. The book of Revelation gives us three different versions of the same event. So you'll find the first one in chapter 16, another one in chapter 19, and here it is again in chapter 20. And in each case, it's no contest. The movies have got this completely wrong. The lesson for us is, don't get stressed about who's going to win in the end. At Calvary, Christ disarmed the evil powers. The devil was decisively defeated at the cross. His fate was sealed then. Which is why verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them 
was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now here's something rather wonderful. I want you please to put this chapter in its wider Bible context in your minds. So cast your mind back to the very beginning of the Bible, will you? Uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 which described the world God had made and you will remember that the world God had made was very good. And there's absolutely no mention of Satan and his activities in Genesis 1 and 2 because he only pitches up in chapter 3. Yes? And the rest of the Bible then speaks about uh, the rescue that God provides leading up to the destruction of the devil here in Revelation chapter 20. And so, the last two chapters of the Bible, like the first two, will also speak about a world that God makes. There will be a new heaven and a new earth that is going to be better than very good. And once again, there's no trace whatsoever of Satan or any of his allies. Do you see the symmetry of that? First two chapters, last two chapters. Are you amazed? I was. And as preparation for that, John sees one final picture. Not this time the last battle, but now the last judgment. There's no doubt about what's going on here in verses 11 to 15. You can't miss it. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now that is a picture, isn't it, of God in absolute control as he has been all along and as he is this morning. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them and each person was judged according to what he had done. Friends, notice, will you, that in this judgment scene, no one's left out. There's no kind of fast pass around this. The great and the small are there. The living and the dead are there. And friends, you see, this is reminding us, isn't it, that death is not an escape from judgment. Anyone who thinks that death is the end hasn't read verse 12. You know, for the last two years we've had daily reminders, haven't we, of death as the media report the number of people who've died from COVID-19. And when it's a loved one, the loss can be desperately, desperately painful. But is it not the truth for us as Christians that some deaths are more painful than others? Because we know, we know that death is not the end. The judgment of verse 12 is going to come. And for some of our loved ones, quite frankly, 
We fear for them, don't we? I know I do. And it's a fear that should give us a burden to speak up while our friends and family are still living. Then verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Friends, no one comes back from the second death. If you find yourself in the lake of fire, that's it. There is no comeback. More positively, next week we're going to see how verse 14 prepares the way for a wonderful new world with no death or mourning or crying or pain. I mean, imagine that after the agonies of the last two years. A world with no hospitals, no funerals, no virus. And that, you see, pay attention to this, is why John now confronts us with the greatest challenge of them all, which is, how do I get from this world to that world? Verse 15 is extremely sobering. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now there are books in these verses, aren't there? Books are opened. These books record every single detail of your life and mine. Everything we've ever done has been logged and recorded Nothing taken out, nothing added to it. And it means that actually in these books, in these books, there's absolutely no hope for me before a holy God. No, my only hope and your only hope lies in the other book, the book of life. That, of course, is the book with the names of those people that Jesus has saved. He's purchased their forgiveness by his death. He's given them eternal life. It's the book of those who turn to the Jesus who said, I am the life. Who've embraced him, who've trusted him and thrown themselves on his mercy. And those are the people whose names are in the book of life. Is yours one of them? A couple of years ago, Gillian and I were invited to have dinner in the House of Lords in London. And uh, when we arrived at the gate, uh, there were a couple of policemen uh, carrying very serious assault rifles. And uh, we were stopped. One of them asked for our names, and he took out his clipboard. And there was a rather worrying pause as he kind of scanned his way down the list. And eventually, to our relief, ah, yes, he said, Simon and Gillian Clegg. That was the key. You know, we were waved in after that. And we entered a whole new world we'd never been in before. Um, our hosts, he was, he's a peer of the realm, very nice Christian man, uh, they gave us a guided tour of um, this amazing place which has been the centre of government for centuries. We saw the throne where the Queen sits for the state opening of Parliament. It was a truly, epically memorable experience. Now, friends, as Revelation chapter 20 comes to an end, a whole new world 
is going to come into being. And we're going to think about that next Sunday morning. Do make sure you're here. You can stride confidently into that new world and you can enjoy every aspect of it in the company of the Lord Jesus Christ. But only if your name is on the list. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that sometimes the hostility we experience as your children is overwhelming. So thank you for showing us this morning that our enemy, the devil, is chained, that he cannot destroy your church, that his fate was sealed at the cross of the Lord Jesus. And thank you for reminding us that death is not the end, and that there will be a judgment on the last day. In light of that, please give us holy boldness to speak lovingly to unbelievers, urging them to trust in Jesus so that they might have their names written in the book of life and have a sure and certain hope of life in the world to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I hand... Thank you for listening to this resource from St. Barnabas Bible Church. For more sermons, visit our sermon library over at sbbc.org.za forward slash sermons. St. Barnabas Bible Church exists to help people find meaning and mission in following Jesus. If you would like to give towards this ministry, here are some ways you can do so.